Welcome back, folks. You're listening to another episode of Drive Into the Basket. I'm Mike, back after a, I guess, two-week hiatus here. Sorry about no episode last week. Uh, just to give a bit of an explanation, what happened is I came down with what appears to have been a short bout of the flu that happened on Monday night. I had the typical experience that I'm sure we've all had with the flu of alternating between being cold to the point of shivering uncontrollably and then burning up and then being cold again and then burning up and ultimately spent about four hours, I think, of that night bundled under a heavy blanket with a heavy winter coat on and three other warm layers and and, uh, and two pairs of warm pants and still being super cold until at around 3 a.m. I started burning up again. Anyway, it, it just left me feeling very physically and mentally exhausted. And as I typically do, if I don't feel like I'm going to be able to put out good, t- good content, I just tend to procrastinate. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll put some out on Thursday night or maybe on Friday morning, and then it's like, okay, we're getting into the weekend, and we're close to when I'm going to record another episode that this ended up being on Thursday, because I, I typically just don't like to record, uh, release an episode on on Wednesday morning if the Pistons are going to be playing that day. <laughs> and then uh, after games, which the Pistons just blow, like last night's game, I, I kind of find it hard to sit down and not feel super bummed out while I'm recording. So in any case, probably should have said something on Twitter, but I allowed myself to get a little embarrassed and just not say anything at all, which I sometimes do. But in any event, as I've said many times, I like to be consistent uh, with you folks. I really appreciate uh, that you listen to the show and that, and that you, you know, a lot of you have been so supportive. And uh, I just like to be consistent and and just sticking with my typical schedule in general. So in any event, all that said, let's talk Pistons basketball. So the first thing I'd like to talk about is today's big news about Killian Hayes and about how the front office was ready to move on from him in the offseason, but Monty Williams asked to keep him. Of course, we know what's happened with Killian this season. Uh, just for the record, this isn't actually new news. Uh, this comes from James Edwards of The Athletic, and he had actually mentioned it in, I believe, mid-December when he appeared on a podcast that you know that he believed Monty Williams was the primary reason that, that Killian stayed on the team in the offseason. And I just want to share my thoughts about that. Now, all of you who have listened to this show for any significant period of time know how I feel about Killian. That not only, of course, was he a massive disappointment with the seventh overall pick, but that it's just been miserable watching him play. He's kind of like the draft bust that just keeps on punishing because we've just been subjected to Killian, big Killian minutes for we're on the third season now. He's been one of the worst players in the league in every season, and that includes his truncated, uh, truncated rookie season. And it's like those last two seasons, okay, fine. You want to definitively see what you might have. But the fact that we got subjected to another Killian, this, uh, Killian season this time around, especially with how he was used, is pretty outrageous. Uh, one thing I'll get to before we talk about the front office's conduct here and, and just the Killian situation in general, another thing James did, and uh, he did this on one of his pod, one of uh, on his own podcast that he does with with uh, Vince Goodwill. I did mention that both this current coaching staff and Dwayne Casey had really put effort into trying to get Killian to more aggressively attack the rim. And Killian, I mean, throughout his entire NBA career, avoids contact. He just he will not attack into contact. He pulls up for floaters. He pulls up for mid range jumpers. He just will not attack into contact. And and it turns out. Though I don't think this comes as much of a surprise, it's more of just a confirmation that the last two coaching staffs have tried to get him to do differently, but he just won't do it, which is, in my opinion, just inexcusable. 
I mean, this is a basic thing that just about every single player in the league does as a matter of course, just attacking into contact, being physical. And the fact that Killian just refuses to do it, even though it's just a basic thing that players have to do, even though it's something that all of his teammates do uh, as a matter of course. And despite the fact that it, it it's really to the detriment of his team because he's incredibly predictable. Defenses don't take him seriously on the drive, you know, even if he can beat beat somebody, which is he's not really great at because his handle with his right hand certainly sucks. But opponents know he's going to go to his left, and he just doesn't have much in the way of burst or ability to beat guys off the dribble. They know he's not going to try. I mean, generally, they'll just have the rim protector advance out to the uh, the top of the restricted area. They know he's going to take a pull-up. So, yeah, that's just, I mean, in addition to him just really struggling as a shooter, I mean, that's just beyond excuse that he was not willing to do that. I, I don't blame the front office for not seeing that coming. I mean, that's a very, very unusual thing. I mean, Lonzo Ball did the same. Though Lonzo, of course, developed other skills that made him viable anyway. Even then, it's like, you know, you could, Lonzo, be more effective as a playmaker off the dribble. You're a very talented passer. But he just wouldn't do it, which is, I think, just a a reason for pretty harsh criticism. But again, managed to make himself an effective player nonetheless, which obviously Killian has not done. So Lonzo, just a better defender and obviously a much, much better shooter. And just, a, yeah, Killian has, has just been consistently one of the worst players in the league because while he is a very talented passer, he is just so bad on offense that he's, he's a massive negative. And uh, I've been in, into Killian plenty, I think, in previous episodes. So, yeah, when it came to the draft, yeah, I, I just don't think that's something you necessarily foresee coming. Killian in, in Euro Cup. He just had a much easier time of getting to the basket because he was much more athletic than the average player he was, he was going up against. Uh, he did resorts to pull-ups and floaters quite a bit when he was contested, though. In any case, I've just talked about Killian for a while. Let's talk about the front office. So, allegedly, what happened, and again, I think we can put, I don't need to say allegedly, uh, the front office was ready to move on from Killian. The word trade was mentioned, and Monty Williams interceded to and asked the front office to, to keep Killian because he liked Killian and wanted to see if he could make a good NBA player out of him, and they said yes. So I don't blame the front office for the situation. Uh, I think what they did was largely reasonable. Uh, number one, I think that the word trade shouldn't is maybe being a little bit overemphasized. I think the return for Killian Hayes, who again had been one of the worst players in the league throughout his, his first you know two and a quarter seasons, and, and I mean, arguably the worst big minute player in the NBA in, in those two full seasons he played aside from a very short stint in uh, like December into early January of his third season which was sandwiched between a horrendous start to the season and a really bad end of the season it had just been I'd be shocked if the guy really had significant trade value again talented passer decent defender I think his defense has blown a little bit out of proportion in terms of its effectiveness you know, a strong player when this play slows down, not really good at defending guards in flight and terrible at navigating screens. So I'd be shocked if there was actually a significant return. It may have just been a lesser salary load, another failed prospect, whatever else. But I don't think they passed up a significant return there by any means. Their shiny new $13 million coach asked for it. Uh, it was reasonable, if still kind of a little bit probably eyebrow raising. to say, I want to see what I can get out of Killian, who again had just been so bad to that point. But the front office can hardly point fingers at anybody else on that count. I mean, they've, you know, wanting to see what they have with the reclamation project, you know, at, at the cost of actually fielding solid role players and functional rosters 
is, you know, has really characterized their tenure. It's been a very, very bad thing. So you can say, well, they shouldn't have done it again, and that'd be reasonable. But I don't think the front office could ever have foreseen the outrageous way that Monty Williams went about utilizing Killian. Like, completely outrageous. If it's just, I want to see what I can get out of this guy, and maybe he'll he'll see some minutes if he plays well. And if he doesn't play well, then probably not going to see minutes anymore. But, you know, we'll start him off with a small role and just see where he can go, which is your typical way of doing things with a reclamation project. I mean, that's a different story. That obviously didn't happen. He got to start from day one. Uh, Jaden Ivey got shoved behind him. And Killian got 41 games, almost all of them bad. <laughs> In the last one, Monty even resorted to playing him as an off-ball guard alongside Asar Thompson. Having those two on the floor throughout the season is, it has throughout the season been a death sentence for the offense. And for obvious reasons, neither of them can shoot. Neither of them can really attack the basket too well. Uh, but he did it anyway in a three-guard lineup um, alongside Asar. And that was against the Wizards. And that lineup lost the Pistons. like a, I think it was like a 20-5 to run or an 18-5 to run when the Pistons were up. And that was the difference in the game. He got DMP'd for the first time last night against the Cavaliers. Should have happened far earlier. Should never have gotten the run that he did. He has been almost always terrible this season. So that's been really insane. Um, just, just really, really insane. His Monty's uh, attachment to Killian and his favoritism for Killian have been completely ridiculous, and I don't think that the front office could have foreseen that. Uh, could have foreseen both his favoritism and uh, and the fact that he really dislikes Jaden Ivey. That that played a part into the way things went as well. Uh, and ultimately, the front office had to step in, which is similarly ridiculous to say you have to play this highly promising pro- uh, highly promising player. And you can't just keep playing Killian Hayes, who's terrible. I mean, it was just such a ridiculous situation. And Monty has just been such a disaster for this team. Uh, I think Killian checked a lot of comfort boxes for him, you know, particularly in terms of plays decent defense and takes care of the ball. And I think Monty demonstrated that he's he was certainly willing to, to take a comfort, you know, guy who checked the boxes, even if that player was really bad. And, and certainly over, over Ivy, whom, again, I think he... It's just proven that he dislikes, and I think that that Monty has proven beyond any shadow of a doubt that his talk of accountability and earning your minutes is was completely false, like almost everything he said to the media this season, and that he is very, very willing to let his penchant for favoritism and outright pettiness uh, override being a good coach, override making good coaching decisions. It has been completely beyond excuse. Sasser got shoved behind Killian as well. You know, if... if Sasser, Sasser would basically get in there if, if there were injuries. I mean, Monty Morris, you know, that created some, being out created some space for it, but Sasser had inconsistent minutes and got DNP'd a, a fair amount. Shoved behind Killian, not excusable. So the benefit ultimately of dumping Killian in the offseason, again, I think the, the return would have been very small, it would have been largely just to get his dead weight off the team and replace him with a half-decent third-string point guard in, in free agency. Uh, unless they really felt that Sasser could play that role. Uh, again, I don't think that, in retrospect, preventing what happened would have made it worthwhile, would have made it extremely worthwhile. But again, I don't think they could possibly have seen what happened with him, uh, what, what would happen with, with Monty and Killian. Same thing with Livers and Killian. I mean, it, it is Monty has just been a complete and utter coaching nightmare. It is just complete. It's just remarkable. I mean, uh, there's like... It's just been unbelievable. You know, there was all, you know, there was also like, you know, 
And I guess maybe they look at him and say, okay, well, there's your reputation as a developer from, you know, from your days in Phoenix or whatever. I think that was pretty much, I think it was very overstated. I think that, you know, with Bridges and Booker and, and Aiden who did improve and, and Cam Johnson, I think that was, you could easily make the case that it was, it was much more, it was a case of correlation, 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 not meaning causation with guys who just improved as they got older, whatever the case. Again, so just basically my summary. I think it made sense with the front I think it was reasonable what the front office did. You know, reasonable, good idea. Maybe those things aren't the same, but reasonable. Unfortunately, it turned out to be a complete disaster. The situations in which I would blame them, number one, if the return was somehow solid. I don't believe that that's realistic, given how bad Killian was. And he was really bad in his first three seasons, really bad. I would blame them if they knew what Monty planned. I'd like to think that they did not. And uh, I put some blame in that they didn't just nail down a solid third string as a result or do it anyway, because, man, depending upon Killian to come in and be an actual decent point guard and, and not suck the life out of the offense. And again, strong passer. No, he couldn't break down defenses, in part because he was unwilling to drive into defenses. But, I mean, his, his struggles as a scorer are, are just so pervasive and so consistent that he was just a, a massive minus on offense. So unless they were really confident of Sasser playing that role, then I think they, they should have brought in that third-string point guard. Though, again, you would have had to have Monty willing to play that third-string point guard in the event that Killian was clearly failing, and he was not. It took 41 games of Killian. So, yeah, I'd, I'd place this largely on, on Monty. It's not Killian's fault that he was getting all these minutes. It's the fault of a coach who was doing something purely on the basis of favoritism that made ultimately absolutely no sense and made absolutely no sense from the very beginning. Let's move on to talking about games over the past week, and we'll talk a bit about the trade deadline. So the Wizards game, pathetic. The bench, excuse me, the starting lineup actually did pretty darn well. Uh, the bench was terrible. All bench lineup strikes again. You got to love how Monty Williams said again and again, I'm, I'm not going to use these bench lineups. Kept doing it and then just dropped the pretense that he was going to stop. Occasionally, the all-bench lineups have done okay. Like against the Cavaliers, they did fairly well. Against the Thunder, they did, they did pretty well. Um, but against the Cavaliers, they actually... Well, there, were, there was some staggering, but against, against the Cavaliers, they did well. However, when your all-bench lineups are doing well in one out of five games and really badly and all the rest, I mean, I don't know what's so hard for this coach to just do the obvious and logical thing and not play all-bench lineups. But in any case, yeah, that all-bench lineup with... Sasser, excuse me, with Morris, Burks, and Killian alongside Asar Thompson, and I, th I think it was Muscala, was just insanity. But I've talked about that already. That was ultimately, I believe, the difference in the game. It was just a pathetic game. The Pistons, finally fully healthy, though, with Cade coming back after a layover and after a, uh, a long time out, and, and Morris only in his second game back. But still, against a really bad Wizards team, and just a pathetic loss. Now, move on to the Thunder. Of course, you have the Pistons playing in the second out of a back-to-back -back without Cade Cunningham. And against the top team in the West, they did exactly what you would expect, which is win. Of course, I'm being facetious. Uh, first game, a uh, first win, excuse me, against a team above 500 in 26 tries. Just everything went well. The Thunder, I need to lead out, you know, I don't need to start with this, but the Thunder were a little, a little bit cooperative and shooting really badly from three. But, you know, those are the breaks. You take advantage of them. So what went right? Um, well, a great deal on the Pistons, and number one was taking care of the ball. They only turned the ball over nine times. Two of those were in garbage time. You know, seven turnovers is about half their season average. 
Obviously, you don't turn the ball over the ball as much. You get more possessions for yourself. You get West fast break, fast break points for the opposition. And, and the fact that the Pistons also shot pretty darn well, I mean, that helps limit. That's in a way taking, you know, way of taking good care of the ball because if it's not clanking off the rim, then the opposition is getting less transition opportunities as well. Ball movement was better. Ivy actually got to cook. He didn't have the most efficient game, but just Ivy is a threat. Ivy blazing in breaks down opposing defenses. Ivy moving off the ball breaks down opposing defenses. Even if Ivy gets in and misses, if he gets to the rim, you got a solid chance of cleaning up the rebound and scoring. And Duran, of course, is Jalen Duran, of course, is very good, the, good at that. Duran did very well on the boards and on offense in general, largely just finishing and playing garbage man. But he's also he's really evolved. I mean, his his the improvement in his touch from his first year to his second on layups in particular. But also around the basket, you know, his spin moves and pump fakes and whatnot is just really remarkable. He was very bad at layups last season, and he's a lot better this season. Uh, not so good on defense, but we'll talk about that later. Strong bench play overall. Again, the all-bench units are good significantly less often than they are bad, but, but they did well overall. Uh, Stewart, we saw a little bit of him moving more off the ball rather than standing stationary at the three-point line. Never going to beat somebody, uh, never going to beat his man off the ball if his man is actually paying attention to him, but... I mean, Monty Williams has just had him obligingly standing at the three-point line and not moving the entire season, so that whereas he might get open, he's only open, of course, well, he's only going to be open, period, if the, the defense leaves him, but not quite as obligingly just going to have him standing there and doing nothing and having defenses know that, oh, he's going to be in the same place as we left him. And and also, again, just not taking advantage of open lanes. Stu got six points out of being much more active moving off the ball, which is good. Again, this is very basic stuff. And it's scheme. It's not Isaiah Stewart, unless he's being told to stand still. I mean, he's one of the hardest workers in the league. He's not just going to be standing there. This is scheme. This is a very basic thing, and this should have been happening already. So overall, just a good game. A lot went right for the Pistons' best win of the season. Now, if we're talking ball movement and ball movement being better without Cade in the lineup, I agree with that. I don't think it's Cade's fault at all. So maintain that he's the best player on the team, at least certainly on offense. And... Unfortunately, Monty Williams, when he has Cade in the lineup, just defaults back to Cade attacking the pick and roll and just creates shots much, you know, largely while your teammates stand still, which he has done all season. It's, it's, uh, it, for those of you, I don't know how many of you, well, probably a lot, who are watching in whatever, I, I don't even know why I speculated on that. We'll just put it in this way. If, if you were watching in the 2016 2017 season, you remember this with Stan Van Gundy. Right, he had run a very pick-and-roll-centric offense around Reggie Jackson the season before, uh, which wouldn't have gotten the Pistons to the playoffs on its own. Marcus Morris really turned it on late in the season. Tobias Harris was the biggest factor coming on. The Pistons were 14-7 and seven down the stretch of that season with Reggie not doing really very well at all. Whatever the case, he got... Yeah, and then they had that competitive four-game sweep, that competitive sweep against the, the Cavaliers, which was really the peak. I mean, this is the pinnacle of what the Pistons have accomplished over the last 15 years. Uh, of course, everything went wrong the next season. Uh, one of those things was Reggie Jackson getting injured in the offseason. His tendonitis, which had been an issue for a while, going back to his days at, um, at Boston College, flared up, and he missed the first 20 games of the season. This meant that Stan Van Gundy could not just rely on uh, running Reggie Jackson on a zillion pick-and-rolls in the slow-paced offense, and he was forced to turn to more of a motion offense. Started off a bit rough, but by the time Jackson was set to return after 20 games, it had really made a lot of progress and, and was actually doing pretty well. Now, when Stan, when Reggie Jackson returned, he had one game coming off the bench, and then 
He started, and Van Gundy immediately discarded that motion offense and just moved right back to these predictable, this predictable, stale, and unquestionably inferior offense that just revolved around Reggie Jackson running pick and rolls, and, and it was just nowhere near as good. It didn't help that Jackson was still injured, and it was just as, as a result of his injury and his bad attitude and Stan Van Gundy emphasizing him as the primary option for like 50 games, even though he was completely unfit for that. I mean, that, that really probably played the biggest role, in my opinion, in just blowing that season, a season in which the Pistons could conceivably have made the playoffs and uh, ended up in the high lottery, you know, the low lottery, the worst place to be. And then Van Gundy drafted Luke Kennard over Donovan Mitchell. Of course, that will go down in Pistons infamy. But uh, in any event, if this sounds familiar, this happening, it's because it's exactly what happens with Monty Williams when he has Cade. The ball movement dies because he just wants to go back to this offense that he likes. And whereas with Van Gundy, it was just hard-headedness and rigidity and him just being out of his, completely out of his depth as an, as an NBA coach in his final two seasons. With Monty Williams, I think it's just laziness, disinterest, and also some pettiness toward Jaden Ivey, whom again, I think we have seen, he has made very evident that he just dislikes Ivey. And then he is willing to let that, that, uh, that dislike override making good coaching decisions. So it's not a zero-sum game between Cade and Ivey. The two can be used synergistically, you know, and, and the idea is that you want to force the defense to have as many things to defend as possible. You want to wrong foot defenses in, in whatever capacity you can. Unfortunately, when Cade's on the floor, it is generally just Ivy go stand in the corner and, you know, we'll see how you're involved in the play, which is not normal. Money is just really, really bad. And Casey was bad in that capacity as well. Both bad encore coaches. Uh, but I think, I mean, uh, Monty didn't do this in Phoenix. And again, I think it's just laziness and with, with a dose of pettiness, but you can use the two synergistically. And Ivy has made clear, actually, in his own accord, he doesn't consider himself a lead guard. So what do you do? Number one, move the ball. Uh, number two, have Ivy move off of the ball. There are far too many possessions and one is too many of Ivy just standing in the corner. Like these, think back to Rip Hamilton, for example, though this is just incredibly basic coaching. Have your guys moving off the ball, have as many threats as you can. Ivy is an elite off-ball mover he's going to beat his defender off the ball. And then from there, you get him the ball on the perimeter. And if he can take the ball and catch it in stride, especially if, for example, Kate Cunningham has already helped, you know, broken down the defense off the pick and roll, then he's very likely to get a lane to the basket. And he's so fast, remarkably fast, that he's likely to get there, going to get there before help arrives. And if help does arrive, then somebody else is open. And boom, you break broken down the defense more and more. You get it to an open shooter. You get it to, you know, your, your center underneath the basket, whatever. I mean, you just, Cade gives the ball to Ivy in stride in another way. And, and like Ivy showed some upside as a motion shooter actually last season that really hasn't been utilized this season, this season either. But simply just the mere act of Ivy moving off the ball is infinitely more valuable than just shoving him in a corner, which is incredibly lazy and is a gift, an actual honest to goodness gift to the defense. It's like, oh, we have this incredibly explosive player who could be moving. You'd have to, you know, you'd have to account for him. If he runs around an off-ball screen, you're probably going to lose him and you got to send another defender at him. You know, even just that alone, uh, instead of, oh, well, we're just going to plop him in the corner. You don't have to pay any attention to him, really. You can even sag off of him and, you know, you can get back probably when the pass goes cross-court to him. You're probably going to have time to get back to him. But uh, we're not only going to just waste what he can offer, we're actually going to make things easier on you. This is horrible coaching, like absolutely horrible coaching. This is just basic stuff. You want to maximize your players. And instead, Monty Williams just minimizes Jaden Ivey. It is beyond excuse. And this is not normal. 
This is, this is, I mean, we've seen the last two coaches do stupid things like this too. Stan Van Gundy and, and Dwayne Casey were both bad offensive coaches. I don't think that Monty Williams is genuinely a bad offensive coach. I think he is just, again, disinterested, lazy, and doesn't like Jaden Ivey. But it's inexcusable in any case. So this should never happen. And again, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not either Kate has to have the ball and be attacking or Ivy has to have the ball and be attacking. These guys can work together, and the idea is to give defenses as many things that they have to pay attention to as possible. You ultimately want to give defenses just the only bad options. That's how you're going to get the best scoring opportunities. So, yes. I mean, think back to those. Uh, think back, for example, to Rip Hamilton. And uh, Rip, of course, very athletic, You know, arguably the best conditioned player in the league. And it did play at a different time. And I think Rip, if he played in today's league, would still be effective, probably taking a lot more threes and, and a lot less mid-range, though. That's still a weapon if you can get it, but you're not really going to run the screen actions in the interior to get him uh, to get him mid-range shots. Those just aren't the most efficient shots you can get, and they also clog up the interior rather than spacing it. But I think he'd still be a valuable player. Again, probably just less mid-range and more shots at the rim and, uh, and more threes. Probably would run around screens and take motion threes from the perimeter. But uh, think about if Larry Brown and Flip Saunders and Rick Carlisle had just said, well, we're going to run Chauncey. He's just going to run the pick and roll. And you're going to stand still. Why would you do that? <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, think about if that had been Rip Hamilton's role in the offense rather than constantly moving off the ball. Like, why? Why would you ever do such a thing with anybody, uh, whether that's Rip Hamilton or Jaden Ivey? You know, guys who are very good off-ball movers who are going to have an easy time getting open. Like, why, why why, would you ever do that? And the answer is that there is no good reason to do that. Only a bad coach doing stupid things will do that. So it, it should just never happen. So uh, we'll bring that on to, uh, probably, you know, excuse me, I'll transition that on into, into the Cavs game. And uh, one thing with the Cavs game, of course, turnovers hurt a lot. The Pistons were just not good at taking care of the ball. And at the beginning of the season, it's like, okay, well, we still got some young players dealing with it. Cade still has his turnover issues. But at what point do you lay this again on the coaching? I mean, that's... Well, obviously, that's uh, that's up to how you're looking at it. But actually, a significantly better ball movement in the first quarter and, and ball sharing between Cade and Ivy. And again, this is basic stuff. This is not rocket science. This is stuff that should have been happening for a long time already. Uh, Monty Williams is coaching at a, at a far sub-adequate level. Uh, as the game went on, it ultimately devolved more and more into Cade handling the ball in predictable sets without much ball movement and Ivy getting shoved into the corner, which was the case throughout basically the entirety of the fourth quarter. Uh, talk about that a little bit more when we talk about the close of the game. Uh, Danilo Gallinari, Danilo Gallinari, show that he still had some stuff left in the tank. And, uh, you know, solid solid guy in offense still. Again, his percentages from three in Washington were so low because he was attempting a lot of pull-ups and doing very badly on those rather than catch and shoots. But they played Gallinari uh, as part of a four-out offense with Asar Thompson. Uh, who really helped to... Gallinari is a weak rebounder. And Asar really at least helped in that capacity to to be the interior threat, setting screens, running pick and rolls, and, and grabbing rebounds uh, on both ends. I mean, it's just amazing with Gallinari and Muscala, who are not really all that good, how much of an improvement upon James Wiseman they have been just in being NBA-caliber players who can space the floor. But Gallinari came away with 20 points in that game. Asar had a good game. He just plays much better into into spacing in these four-out lineups, so they're really just damage control. It just allows him to do more, but he's, he's got to be a shooter. Um, but getting more run in the pick-and-roll, especially with Sasser, they've developed some solid chemistry there, and basically playing center on offense in these in these uh, with four shooters in the floor, rather than just hanging out in the corner and gifting possessions to the defense and giving zero value. And it's like, oh, well, just go stand in the corner, Asar, and you can't shoot. 
and your defender is absolutely free to just run into the interior when anybody drives. And if you get the ball, the defense is rooting for you to shoot because you're still a very, very bad shooter. Again, inexcusable. Uh, what he's doing now is not really much of an innovation. It's not an innovation. It's just he should have been being used in the same, you know, in the way that would actually give him value. Like you look at Bruce Brown, for example, who's nowhere near as, as, uh, as athletic or you know, strong in the pick and roll, how he was used by Steve Nash in, in his first season in Brooklyn, and he still couldn't shoot. It's like, okay, we'll use him on the short roll. We've got, of course, they had elite creators who could, um, you know, who could do their thing. Of course, you're Brooklyn in that situation. You can really, you know, when you have multiple Hall of Fame caliber creators, you can get away with having non-shooters in the floor. But this is just basic stuff. Make best use of the players, of the assets of the players you have on the floor. With the SAR, you can't shoot. you got to use them in other ways. What you absolutely don't want to do is use them in a way that makes him just an incredible liability who provides a new value. So it's uh, it's just uh, it's a step up, certainly, from the outright laziness with which uh, he was being used. Really good game on defense, strong game overall. Uh, you know, not so much as a passer, but I mean, he just he just provides so much out of the scoring column. Though again, he's going to have to be a shooter. I mean, that that's non negotiable. Uh, Sasser said we didn't get to play much. He's been good lately. Talk about that a bit later. Duran really just had a bad game, and he has been astonishingly bad on defense lately. Like we are talking, honest to goodness, terrible. If any of you remember those James Harden highlight videos from his early time in Houston, that's really what Duran's been been about. Whether it's blown coverage, just falling asleep, um, positioning himself completely wrong, reacting late, you know, closing out too slowly. Though <laughs> against the Cavaliers, Monty Williams, who just likes to run Duran and hardcore drop, where it's like, okay, uh, guard gets around the pick and roll, and he's just going to retreat back into the paint against. In this situation, Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell, who can both who are both pull-up threats from both the interior and the perimeter. I'm not just going to do it any, anyway. And guys, you're good at this, but take your shots. We don't care. Stupid. You know, you drop in, in certain situations. If you want to drop against Russell Westbrook, it's like, sweet. If you want to drop against John Morant, solid idea. Uh, the drop has a time and a place. And the Pistons gave up a fair number of points. I think if I counted correctly, uh, eight points, I believe. And they could have given up a lot more. But, but Garland and Mitchell missed some shots. There was no upside to that drop defense at all. And that I don't blame on Duran. But just in general, he just makes a ton of mistakes. And sometimes he looks outright disinterested. And, and there, were, there were some plays against the Cavaliers where it's like, what on earth are you possibly thinking? There's other plays in which he quit, which is happening lately. You don't see the same level of effort that he had in, uh, in his rookie season where he still made mistakes. And, and still didn't really parlay his length into the sort of disruption you would expect and had a little bit of difficulty positioning himself properly to defend against drives, um, but but worked hard and had that, you know, both arms up jumping contest when he was closing out on somebody. You haven't really seen any of that this season. He has just been straight bad, and it's it's been even worse in the last month or so. He has been a sub-replacement level defender, genuinely terrible, and it's worrying. Nobody wants to make comparisons between him and the player who wore that same number throughout most of the 2010s for the Pistons. Um, I'll do it anyway. I'm not going to, as as always, I'm going to hold to my pledge to not talk much about Drummond. There are definitely differences between them. Like Duran has infinitely better touch around the basket than Drummond, who is just terrible around the basket. He doesn't have the obsession with being an offensive superstar. There was shot selection at times lately has been in some games bad enough that uh, that I think by rights he should have been pulled. Uh, to, to punish him for that but he doesn't have that obsession you know by all um by all indications or the tendency to sulk and he does seem to play for his team for the most part but man his effort on defense sucks and pulls uh, and just his overall performance on defense really detracts from his value hopefully it's just youthful issues i'm not going to worry about it until his third season 
uh, but it looks bad. It's it's worth noting about Drummond that back before he went into athletic decline, which happened at like the age of 27, he was actually a pretty darn strong defender when he was trying hard. Unfortunately, that was like 5 to 10% of the time. But as much as I rag on Drummond, and I rag on Drummond because his his, uh, his level of effort, I think, and just overall mentality were disgusting, and he really just was his own worst enemy. I think he could, could have been on the border of all defense if he had really consistently tried hard. So his issue was not bad awareness or bad decision-making. It was just all that he didn't care. So it's been concerning with Duran, and, and he was just absolutely terrible against the Cavaliers. He's been terrible in a lot of games lately. And that, that brings me to closing, uh, which there are a lot of issues. Durham was one of them, in my opinion, should never have been out there. I mean, he was just so bad all game. He was not good on, on offense either. He was not particularly good on the boards against, against Allen and Mobley. He was terrible on defense. Now, what you ultimately have is Duran out there and providing very, very little value. You had Asar Thompson, who had been doing a good job on Donovan Mitchell and just had a pretty good game overall, being taken off the floor so that you could put Jaden Ivey out there and stick him in the corner so he could do nothing and provide very little value on offense at the same time as you know being a below-average defender, whereas Asar is a very strong defender already as a rookie. What you do in that situation, you have Gallinari out there, uh, who's at least gonna you know is going to give you additional spacing. You operate Asar in the same way as you as you have been typically. He can be Cade's role man. You have, him de- you have him defending Mitchell, and uh, Gallinari had had the hot hand, and Asar had been good. But instead, we got Ivy, who I'm not dissing. He had, he had a good night on offense, you know, and he only got to take nine, he only got nine opportunities, um, which is only one more than he got against Washington, which was absurd. But he had 14 points in those nine opportunities. But if you're not going to use him any offense, you're just going to plop him in the corner and not doing anything with him at all, then he's going to be a minus because he's not a good defender. You keep Asar out there. You put Gallinari out there. And, and you close with the players who make sense. Unfortunately, the coaching was very, very rigid. Coaching, which has been consistently horrible throughout the season in late-game situations. The Pistons are now 2-17 and 17 in close games. Uh, the offense devolved into the typical guys you stand still while Cade goes on predictable sets. We're not going to actually try to run a good offense. It's just going to be endless sets with, uh, with Cade and Boyan. There was that instance in which Ivy actually got the ball in his hands at the perimeter with the floor spaced out going up against Donovan Mitchell, who should be a good defender, but definitely isn't. And Monty Williams just burst up to the ref and called the timeout immediately. And then, then just called a predictable set with Alec Burks, in which he could have taken a shot, made an extra dribble and ended up turning it over on shot clock. But that was completely absurd. Again, the guy really dislikes Ivy, but the closing has just been awful. Yes. Uh, you know, Boyan and, uh, and Burks could have hit some more shots. The one of Boyan's shots was like a three from four feet behind the line. Run a dynamic offense. Run an offense that's going to get you the best possible opportunities it can. Don't just run a stale, easily predictable offense where you're just giving gifts to the defense, like keeping Ivy in the corner. So, yeah, rigid coaching. I'm willing to be adaptive. If it reminds you of something, that makes sense. Dwayne Casey was very bad in the late game, and Stan Van Gundy was even worse. Just um, really, really rigid and made the same mistakes over and over again. And I I think, again, with, with Monty Williams, I don't think he's incompetent. I think he's just incredibly lazy. So really frustrating. And and the Pistons lost another winnable game. I think this roster is bad. I'll say it again. The roster has major issues. The roster went into the season with major issues. I don't think that it would have been anywhere near this bad in terms of performance. If you had a competent coach, I think the Pistons still, you can have a disappointing season in year four when the Pistons want to run in and want to come in and win more games. And you won 17 games last season. And I don't think with a competent coach, the Pistons, we would be winning many more than that. Would they have had a 28-game losing streak? Would everything have gone wrong? I think that it's incredibly unlikely if they had not just if they had not hired a coach who has been 
I'll just reiterate this once more because I think it's just been unbelievable how bad he has been. He has been a complete catastrophe. I don't. I can think of very, very little that he's done well, and an incredible amount that you think that that he has done wrong. And I, I think it's just largely because he's doing things the way he wants to do things, and and he just doesn't care all that much. And what are they going to do? Fire him? It's like, oh well, so sorry, Monty. You don't have a job anymore. You're just going to need to go and be very sad with the seventy million dollars we're giving you, or is it seventy? Sorry, eighty million. <sighs> what a mess. <clears throat> Some general subjects. Sasser is doing surprisingly well. Uh, at, at point guard, I thought really that Sasser was just going to be an undersized shooting specialist, which made it for me the pick a little bit weird, because it's like he's a shooting specialist. You can't really handle the ball. You just have to have him on the floor with a larger handler at all times. But he's really been making improvements as as a handler, and you kind of see maybe the possibility for budget Lou Williams there with better defense, a guy who can t- take a lot of shots off the dribble, both in the interior and on the perimeter. Sasser has been a surprisingly High percentage pull-up shooter from the interior, though he's been very inconsistent, of course, uh, up until recently. Really, those were sort of bloated by those big his, his stats are a little bit bloated by those big games he had early in the season. But if he can hit those pull-ups, and he can hit his pull-up threes, and he's real fast, and he works super hard, then his sort of not great playmaking is less of an issue, because he's going to get guys open by default and just score a lot. And that's... I don't think he's really got a ton of talent as a playmaker. He wasn't even good at it against NCAA defenses as a fourth-year player. But if he can just create a lot of offense off the dribble and attract attention uh, and, and just make basic passes to guys, I mean, he's still going to be short and it's at some disadvantage on defense just because some guys can score over him. Being like six foot one, six two is actually a significant weakness in today's league in a way that it really wasn't five years ago. But yeah, he's impressed me and uh, has made some solid passes in the pick and roll against some chemistry with the Sar Thompson. Uh, makes you think about Monty Morris a little bit, and we'll talk trade deadline in a little bit. But yeah, Sasser has is, is, showed some stuff as an on-ball player that I didn't expect. And of course, he can play very well as an off-ball player as a shooter and uh, needs to take that three, that pull-up three more often. That really makes him a lot more of a threat and lets him score more. Again, I saw Thompson lately. You can really see what he can offer. Really very good in just about every other way except for shooting. If he learns to shoot, watch out. One of the best role players in the league. Super good attitude, really hard worker, and has done well lately. I hate to bring it back to coaching again, but uh, this comes back to his coach. Now that he no longer has access to Isaiah Livers, one of the worst players in the league whom he was playing over, Asar Thompson. You know, does, does what Asar has done lately, does that happen if, if Isaiah Livers is still on the team? Uh, given how much of, uh, of uh, a run Killian got, I gotta say probably not. I think Livers was just another like, comfort player for Monty Williams. But, you know, it turns out that, number one, actually giving your recent fifth overall pick, you know, weaknesses are not actual significant run and, uh, and a decent role is just a good thing in general. It's also good for his confidence that he's just not being given minor inconsistent minutes and on offense just being shoved in the corner and saying, well, you get to provide no value and just fail. Well, that's fun. So he's been good lately. Uh, it, it's been good to see. Of course, that shooting has to come along. You know, even if you're like as powerful on offense as Giannis, you know, not being able to shoot is still a weakness that has to be built around. And of course, it's hard. It hardly needs to be said is nowhere near Giannis's equal in terms of attacking off the dribble. And very few players in NBA history have been have bundled that ability to attack with Giannis's size and athleticism um, and pretty good acuity as a passer. I just want to underline again also, Moscow and Gallinari are not very good NBA players, but just how much more they have provided than Wiseman, not just because of shooting, but just being 
guys who can make basic NBA decisions. It really just underlines how bad Wiseman is and how bad Wiseman is and how bad the trade was. I mean, it didn't even make sense to give Wiseman more reps on an incredibly bad team. The idea, I think, was that okay. Actually, I feel very certain that the, this was the idea. Was that he hasn't he hasn't had much in the way of seasoning. He's got really good physical assets and. Hopefully you give him more time and it's just a matter of learning and he makes better decisions. It turns out that he's just got, by all appearances, incredibly bad basketball IQ. Like incredibly bad, like zeroth percentile defensive basketball IQ that, I don't I mean, maybe he'll be given another chance in the offseason, but man, if I were another team and looking at him, I wonder if I would even see him as a worthy reclamation project. You know, even his kind of inconsistent effort aside, it's like, it is remarkable how bad he is at making, at just making decisions on both ends. So uh, finally, trade deadline, which is uh, almost exactly a week away when I'm recording this, at the time I'm recording this episode. Pistons are in a tough position, a tough position where they have very little in the way of, of solid tradable assets with which they are willing to part. I understand they don't want to get rid of any of the big four. That makes perfect sense to me. And outside of that, I mean, you've got Isaiah Stewart. Do you really want to get rid of him? What are you going to get? Some future draft assets. Do you really want to kick the can down the road? He's a solid player when used effectively or when used properly. I mean, your guys who are going to ostensibly provide you the most value, though the value may not be great, are, are Boyan Bogdanovich and Alec Burks. Alec Burks, who after a brutal slump has really, to say the least, turned it on as a shooter and, and some as a, as a creator as well. Uh, over the past, I think it's been about a month, I mean, the Pistons, the games they have won have largely, aside from the Thunder game, have pretty much been because Burks went nuclear. So here's the problem is that outrageously bad front office strategy uh, meant uh, they led to the Pistons, led the Pistons to a point at which basically all their shooting was loaded into veterans. Uh, Boyan, Burks, Monte Morris, who doesn't really shoot all that much, but is a high percentage shooter, and well, Joe Harris, whom you know was he ever really expected to provide value? I don't. I, I get the if the front office thought that he could, then they had done no research, as he was clearly washed last season. But basically, unless you count Isaiah Livers, who had shot thirty six percent in his uh, in his only non-20 game season so his second season where he played uh, 60 games and was shot only 36 percent and it was never reliable, going to be reliable from an injury standpoint in, in any case so if, if you take those players if you're not counting those players just all veterans and a second year player who excuse me a third year player who was had not proven himself at the nba level anyways as, as a shooter uh, your list of reliable shooters is nobody Again, this this front office did a remarkably bad job of of building this team. Uh, a great deal of shooting was built. You know, was was um, a great deal of the team's shooting. Basically, it's only elite perimeter shooting, unless you're counting Sasser. I think the role he was going to have this season was going to be uh, unclear. And again, strong shooter in college doesn't necessarily mean strong shooter in the NBA. You know, until he, you know until that player proves it. So. Just an enormous amount of the team's shooting was loaded into Alec Burks and Boyan Bogdanovich. And it's helpful for those guys to be around, both because it gives the Pistons the chance to win more games. And they really, again, really needed those players to do well to win two of the three games that they've won after that 28-game losing streak, or even to be respectable. And that makes them valuable. You know, more wins, be able to play a functional offense, you know, this could all be important for confidence and in going into next season, uh, not being, oh, well, we were just, um, this for the players, for it to be a less grueling and less deflating season. And so it's like you would think that a terrible, with a terrible team, with a terrible team whose front office had not 
done such a terrible job, you'd say, okay, it's, it's acceptable. We can lose these guys. We've got younger shooters. We've got enough shooting on the team. Um, but instead the Pistons are in a situation in which the season of course is, I mean, I don't think anybody's looking at this and thinking that the Pistons can make a run for the play. And I mean, that would really be very remarkable to say the least. I mean, the heat were able to make it to almost the postseason after a terrible start in, in 2016, 2017. But of course that was a team full of veterans and that was almost unprecedented. And again, I, I don't think it's a pessimistic outlook to say that the Pistons are very unlikely to be to be making any sort of significant push this season. Um, but still, you have a, a really, really bad team, but you still can't really... It's questionable if you can trade away your veterans for assets. So the return would, of course, make a difference. But Alec Burks, I don't think you get more than a couple of seconds, and they may not be very good seconds, um, because he's kind of streaky, which is not necessarily unusual in his career. And his postseason defense would be an issue. Burke's a pretty bad defender. Boyan, definitely a strong scorer and, and definitely an elite play finisher. Um, also very questionable on the defensive end. It'd be less of an issue than it was in Utah if you have if you have better defenders on the floor with them because the presence of multiple bad defenders just compounds the impact of them both or all three of them or whatever else. But let's say you get some seconds from Burks. You get like a protected first for Boyan, a late protected first Late firsts are not worth really all that much. First on the on the border of the second round. And the protected first is not going to free the Pistons from the step roll. You absolutely have to, like 100%, be guaranteed a first-round pick in order for the step roll to not apply the step rule, which says that you absolutely have to have a first-round pick. In, uh, you cannot be without a guaranteed first-round pick in two consecutive future seasons. And, of course, the Isaiah Stewart pick being tied up. So, though... Um, you know, they actually couldn't really trade those picks anyway because um, the Knicks technically own them every season until the lottery. So it wouldn't really even make any difference in that capacity, even if it were a guaranteed pick. So I'm not sure how I got on that tangent. Sorry, I've been talking for about 45 minutes straight here. Um, actually, my real issue is that I'm getting very hungry. <laughs> it's not that I've been talking for a while. The blood sugar is taking a bit of a dive. So um, is that worth it? Maybe you want to have Boyan on the on the team next season. Um, who knows if that'll provide you a better, and who knows how, how much of that cap space you're realistically going to be able to spend on good players. Is it going to be better to have Boyan, who I think is likely to age well? So beyond that, who else is there? I mean, Monte Morris has been, Monte Morris uh, has been one of the better backup point guards in the league for some time now. He also has played three games since like an eight-month layover. Our team is really going to want to give up value for him. Uh, not knowing if he's going to get back to previous form. This is not like a good player where it's like, okay, it's just going to take him some time. And if he was a little bit like a good starter and if he's a little bit worse, then, um, you know, then he usually is. That's fine. I mean, you take a guy who's who's a strong backup point guard, but still very much a backup point guard and say, uh, well, is he going to be able to get back up to form this season? That's much more questionable. I mean, if he has like a great week, you know, leading up to the, the deadline, though, you know, the Pistons literally have three games between now and then. Uh, maybe that changes things a bit, but again, I think you're very much looking in in a second round pick range, and second round picks are good to have and good as trade assets. Do you want to keep Monte in the next season? I think maybe you consider him expendable if you can get a solid return, and you know if you feel good about Sasser, and I think the Pistons should feel better about Sasser. So, and if you keep Morris, then not really much space for Sasser going forward. But again, I don't think that there's much value there. And when you're trading for postseason teams, they're very unlikely to be trading good players back. 
you know, solid role players. You're very unlikely to get back when you're trading Boyan, when you're trading Burks, when you're trading Monte Morris. You're, these teams want to keep their solid role players for the postseason, unless these solid role players are just at a very expendable position. Like, would New York, for example, say, okay, maybe we'll give you Quentin Grimes who wants out? Uh, I don't know for Monte Morris. I mean, if he'd had a strong season, maybe. Um, but even then, uh, you're really putting him into a position of, you know, that's that's fairly deep already, um, unless you're really planning on getting rid of Burks. But with the Knicks spring for that, who knows? I mean, maybe if they do, you flip him for a third team. But again, Morris has not been in all season. He's played three games. So tough spot. No sense sending out significant assets, given that the Pistons are nowhere near the hump, so to speak. They need reliable veterans who can play def- decent defense and shoot threes and are, and are very stable. But so does everyone. I guess you can take shots on, get some picks and just guys you're going to take shots on for the rest of the season. But, you know, that's a pretty old, tired story at, at this point. And is it worth losing the teams, you know, the, the veterans who are have just drastically disproportionate importance to this team because they're the only guys who can really shoot uh, reliably? It's not a good place to be in. Uh, let's talk about the big news, which was that uh, last week about on the trademark, it's, which is that... Uh, the Pistons have been speaking to the Bulls about Zach Levine. The fact that they were even speaking to the Bulls about Zach Levine, about a Levine trade, is concerning to me because I think that would not be a good idea for the Pistons. Uh, Levine is a player who, you know, it's questionable his impact upon winning, even though he's averaged about 25 points per game on, on good efficiency over the last three seasons and creates a lot of his own offense. Now, the fact that the Bulls just want to get rid of him, I mean, it's not all about his health, and his health is a concern. He's had repeated lower body injuries. He has already lost a certain amount of what used to be incredible athleticism due to his injuries. He's nearing 30. And and as we certainly saw with Blake Griffin, as we've seen with other players, uh, repeated injuries to the lower body can have a compounding effect. Uh, compounding effect to compounding, excuse me. Uh, repeated injuries to the back as well, but certainly to the lower body. Uh, Levine hasn't had issues with his back, but repeated injuries to the back. You look at Dwight Howard, for example, uh, to the spine. But lower body, yeah. I mean, those can compound in both in all of frequency, severity, and long-term impact. So that's definitely a major factor. Also a factor is that on offense, if he doesn't have the ball, he's very listless and disinterested. If he does have the ball, he wants to shoot it. He doesn't really want to pass it very much. He's a guy who wants to get his, which actually significantly lessens his value in, uh, in an offense overall. It's certainly been addition by subtraction for the Bulls. It definitely helps that. I mean, getting getting uh, Kobe White out from under out from behind Levine has been a very positive thing. Kobe White, who's got a strong case for a most improved player. Um, so when and, and Levine hasn't had a great season, granted, though he's he really started slow and, and has picked it up. But they've just been a lot better without him. You know, even though he hasn't had the greatest season, you'd think that a player who's still averaging upwards of twenty points per game on, on solid efficiency and, and a player who had been a strong score in the previous three seasons would be a player that the Bulls would want to keep, but they don't. It's partly his health, partly just how he, uh, you know, how he operates in the offense, and other teams are not really biting either. Also, don't underestimate the impact of bringing a guy in who is not a good culture fit. So, I wouldn't give out any value for him if I were the Pistons. I would not even. Oh, oh also, he's owed like uh, I think 148 million dollars over the next three seasons, assuming he picks up his option, which I would say at this point unless he has a major career resurgence and, or just things really, really improve. I mean, that's nearly $50 million he'd be giving up. you got to think that he would take that. Um, you got the health concerns, but you also got that he's just not entirely a winning player. You have that he would, you could not possibly not hurt the development of Jaden Ivey. 
And Levine, not the most winning of players, in my opinion. And again, health concerns. Ivy could very much be a winning player. So that is that would be, I think, a significant downside. And he's a bad defender. You really want to bring another bad defender on this team. And another thing that takes away from him being a winning player. Um, I wouldn't even do it for expirings, to be honest. I don't know why to say, to be honest. Of course, I'm being honest here. Uh, I would just not be interested. I don't think, like, you wonder if at some point it's like, okay, at, at a point, when is it better to just get something rather than nothing with cap space? I just don't think even in that situation, Levine is going to be a good return on cap space. I don't think his attitude is really likely to change at, near, at around 29 years old. And again, the health problems are just likely to get worse. It'll be a disaster if the Pistons walk out empty, but is basically okay, we'll go with a bad option rather than an unknown option, a good option. You know, is, is that a good idea, rather? Is let's just do something a good option? Like, I understand, I would not blame anybody in the slightest bit if you're just completely tired of watching the Pistons lose and just want some form of improvement. In my opinion, just, you know, let's do something, even if it's far from ideal. You know, if you're the front office, I think that's the road to mediocrity, and I think building a contender should still be the goal. So it, it concerns me that they're even talking about it, given that I think it would just not be a good trade at all. It makes me wonder if the front office has is, is really been pushed up against the wall. Again, there are two options here with the front office. Either the front office is not in the hot seat, which would be insane, or the front office is on the hot seat and has been told we want improvement in the short term, or I, rather, because it's Tom Gores, and he's done with this with the last two GMs. I want improvement in the short term, or you're probably fired, which would also be insane because it just creates the potential for panic moves. But the fact that they're even talking with Chicago about Levine, assuming they weren't planning on making this three-team deal and forwarding him to somebody, and I don't know why the Bulls would just not deal with that team instead, if uh, if some significant, you know, if some solid value is going to be going in the other direction, why not just deal directly with them? Um, I doubt that's what we're talking about anyway. It makes me concerned that short-term improvement is really being looked at without considering how actually good that's, you know, how how actually wise making the move will be. So just in the trade deadline in general, I wouldn't be surprised if nothing substantive happens, substantive happens. Um, particularly if we're looking at option number one, where the front office is not in the hot seat, or at the very least, they're uh, either not being told that you have to improve now and we're going to wait until the offseason, or they're not being permitted in, in some respect, whoever might be doing that, uh, to, to make any big panic moves. But uh, the front office is it's a tough situation. Again, it's not easy to just say, oh, we're going to make improvements. Uh, you know, how are we going to get solid role players that other teams want? We're not really willing to part much in the way of assets. What's really going to improve this team at this point that we can realistically do? That makes sense. The front office really backed itself into a corner, should not still be employed. Add to it that the coach is an unmitigated disaster and that the owner, Tom Gores, is very, very much as bad as he has ever been. You know, just solely accepting that he's no longer, you know, that he, that he allowed the team a rebuild, which is basically the one good decision he's ever made, a substantively good decision he's ever made after, what was it, eight years or nine seasons, if you count the, the second, you know, if you count that they went into 2019, 2020 with... Uh, you know, halfway through before he finally got the picture, but it denied a rebuild before that. He's the worst owner in the NBA now that Michael Jordan is gone. I'd say worse than James Dolan. Less of a sleazebag, though still a sleazebag. But if we're talking you just purely on the on the uh on the basis of results. I mean this is uh this is an owner who has is in his thirteenth season owning this team. It continues to make all the same mistakes, continues to have learned very little, and has been by a wide margin the least successful G, the least successful owner currently in the league, and even Jordan was more successful than him. Even Jordan, who was uh, a very, very bad team owner, and it starts and ends at the top. And I, I think we're seeing Tom Gores just make a, a lot of the same mistakes again. You know, 
we're just going to continue to give this front office chances. We're going to continue to give this coach, you know, has only been in for one year, but has been, but has been a disaster and whom Tom Gore has hired in the first place who didn't want the job. And it's a great way to get a good employee, get a good employee being highly sarcastic. You know, it's, he doesn't want the job. He doesn't even want to work right now. He probably particularly, maybe particularly doesn't want to work for you. And I'm just going to give you larger and larger and larger bags of fully guaranteed cash until you say, okay, it would be dumb for me not to do this. Uh, I wonder if, I mean, we don't have uh, an insight into his mind, but I wonder, clearly he didn't think that was a bad idea, which is a big red flag in the first place and almost undoubtedly went ahead with it because he wanted to, because he thought that Monty Williams could, uh, could shortcut the rebuild. Tom Gores loves shortcuts, but don't want to go into a diatribe. Point is that, I mean, it, it, this stuff starts from the top. I think that Tom Gores has two virtues. Number one, he really wants this team to succeed, clearly. And number two, he is willing to put in money. I think he'd be, he'd be willing to operate at a loss if it meant a successful team. Unfortunately, in the case of Monty Williams, he even managed to turn that willingness to spend into a negative. And uh, I, I think he's just shockingly amateurish, even even after uh, this is 13th season owning the team. And uh, it's a problem. So... Yeah, I know that's not the happiest way to end an episode. You know, just talking about the awful coach, the fact that the Pistons currently have an awful coach and, and a very failed general manager, very failed front office, and above them, a, a really, really bad owner. But, uh, you know, I've never been intent on, I'm not trying to, to toot my own horn here, but you know, I was not here to sugarcoat things. That's where we stand. You know, we're Pistons fans. We soldier on. We just saw the Lions have some success. It did ended up being you know, a very disappointing way to lose. But, and, you know, it's super happy for their fans that, uh, that they got to, who have been very long-suffering fans and got to see some success. Uh, though it, it really was a good story that almost became a great story. And, you know, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, we as Pistons fans will uh, be able to experience that same sort of satisfaction. So in any case, folks, I uh, hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hope you're all doing super well. And I will catch you in next week's episode. 